Welcome, everyone, to the Mind Your Money podcast, a show by public.com that examines the relationship between investing, human behavior, and happiness. I am back with my friend Morgan Housel on another episode. How are you doing, Morgan? I'm, I'm doing well. Thanks again, Doug. This is fun as we wrap up uh, the, the start of the summer. Today, we're going to be talking about your perception of wealth and how your social network influences how rich you actually think you are, a topic that's near and dear to my heart that I've been thinking a lot about lately. We're also going to discuss the idea of expectations debt and whether or not the AI boom is creating a debt that will eventually need to be repaid. That sounds really heady. I'm glad you're with me, Morgan, because you're going to help me out here understand a little bit more about perception debt, excuse me, expectations debt and what that even means. And later in the show, we're speaking with Cass Sunstein. He's the Robert Walmsley University professor at Harvard Law. I'll say that three times fast. And also the founder and director of the Program on Behavioral Economics and Public Policy at Harvard Law School. That's a lot of crimson. But let's dive right into it, Morgan. What do we got? Doug, there was a study that was published a couple weeks ago. It was made a lot of rounds. It was big on social media. They basically asked Americans... How much money do you need to feel rich before you consider yourself rich? And the average answer was 2.2 million. And just after that, there was another study that I saw recently that asked the same question, but it asked in, in income, how much income do you need to feel wealthy? And the most common answer was over a million dollars. Both of those kind of took me aback because particularly the income one, yeah, I would have, income, I would have thought the income one. one would have been like 250,000. That's what I would have thought. A million dollars is, is a lot of money. The net worth one, I kind of understand, but as I started to unpack this, maybe it made a little bit more sense particularly if you live in, in an urban region, what makes you feel wealthy, I think, is for a lot of people is, can I afford a house? Can I afford to buy a house? And if you are living in a region where a modest house might cost you a million dollars, million and a half dollars, two million dollars, if you're in San Francisco or New York or Seattle or whatever it might be, then maybe it makes sense that yeah. your definition of risk of rich is a house. That's it. I'm not talking Ferraris and private jets. It's, can I have a house for myself? So in some ways I was like, I kind of, I, I, that the net worth one, I kind of understand. Yeah. The I get income that. one kind of blew my mind. Well, I'm in total agreement with you. Like, you know, I work with clients who make all ranges of, of, you know, salaries or household income and a and million dollars a year, categorically speaking, I don't care if it's New York city or San Francisco or, you know, the middle of Missouri, it is a ton of income that should provide you hopefully with a very comfortable life. Yeah. The 2.2 million, you know, net worth, you 3% rule, 4% rule. You can wrap your head around that, but a million dollars, that's a ton of money. And interesting in that survey, um, when they, when they asked millennials and Gen Z respondents, uh, whether they feel rich and, and you're, and this is the joke or the connection I'm trying to make for, for two generations, millennials here who, you know, constantly are getting either dunked on or the commentary around buying a home, which is where Americans usually feel their wealth. You know, these are the two generations that like can't buy a home. Right. Um, and yet 57% of millennials and 46% of Gen Z respondents to the survey said they feel rich. And that's a little perplexing because, you know, we're now all over the map on this survey. If you were to ask me just in terms of what we spoke about, um, how is that possible? How is it possible that the generation struggling with buying home? I mean, 
do we just feel more wealthy because of all the cool stuff we have in social media? And why? Why is this happening? That makes no think, sense to me. I think first you have to distinguish between a 19-year-old Gen Z person and a 39-year-old millennial. There's a big geriatric millennials like us. Yeah, it's de it's definitely true. As from my own experience, world, I'm yeah. sure this is true for a lot of people. I think the richest I ever felt in my entire life is when I got my first paycheck when I was uh, seven, 17. It's probably the richest yeah. I ever felt. I don't know what it was, $300, something like that. I where, where, were you ever felt richer. where were you working? I was a host at Denny's. I was at Blockbuster Video. Definitely felt so rich on that person. But, but I think part of that is because I didn't have any expenses at 17. <laughs> Zero, none, no one's ever. And now, and now at pocket. 39, I've got a family. And I, so it's like everything changed your perception of what counts as rich. And a 19-year-old with $5,000 is crushing it. Whereas yeah. a 45-year-old with $25,000 like might, might be considered on the razor's edge in, 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 some, in some scenarios. So I think that might be part of this. When, when you just label like Gen Z and millennials, like there's a big spectrum within there. Oh my God, dude, between just the ends of millennials, the geriatric millennials who are, you know, pushing 40 versus you got 26 and seven year olds in there. If you have a conversation, if we had a conversation with the 27 year old, I promise you there's not a lot of relatability going on, given the fact that we have kids in these responsibilities. So throwing in I mean, Gen Z there to the mix yeah. is, is, you know, might as well go four generations deep on that one is pretty much I mean, what that looks like. I mean, you are a millennial and you have three brown hairs on your head. I mean, that just goes to show what we're talking about here. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have children, expect color loss in your head. Morgan must dye his hair, I think is what he's trying to tell us here. You want to move on to the next topic? Did we do that one justice? I think that's a good, I think that's a really good answer uh, as to, you know, expectations around generations. You, you, you obviously, when you have very, uh, relatively less responsibilities than your older generational counterpart or, or counterpart or the generation above you, you obviously are going to feel, uh, and the same is true with health, right? You feel invincible. I think that's the same construct there. Nothing bad could happen to you. You're in the peak physical form of your life. So maybe you have led yourself into believing you are in the peak financial shape of your life when you get to live at home and, you know, put a paycheck in your bank account. I mean, there was a similar study. This was a couple of years ago that I remember thinking it was so bogus when it was going around, which was that it was a study that uh, was looking at the percentage of Americans age 18 to 35 who still live with their parents. And that percentage has gone way up over the last 20 years, I think it was. And I remember thinking, well, there's a massive difference between a 19-year-old living with their parents and a 34-year-old living with their parents. Two completely different. Let's not lump all those people in the same category. I think there's a lot of that going on here. I will also throw a bone to the fact that um, cultural, you know, conditions have a lot to do with that, right? I'm not going to marginalize any group on the podcast here, but it's true, though. I mean, there there are plenty of cultures that view living with your parents until such time as you are married or find someone or have, or even are married but are looking for stability in your life to then leave the house. Also, just speaks to the tightness of family units. So, hey, you know. That's off to those of you living rent-free into your 30s because it's really what's accustomed versus you just can't get out of the house. 
Here's what's, I think what's so true about the perception of wealth too, and whether you feel wealthy, and maybe that's get, this gets into the million dollar income idea of what is wealthy, which is that we've talked a lot about this, that, which is that your definition of, of rich is just relative to other people. There's no objective le- level of wealth. It's just how much do I have relative to that person? And for most of history, up until about 10 years ago, you were comparing yourself to people around you in your neighborhood and your coworkers and your siblings, people who you saw, maybe a little bit of the people you saw on TV, but that was pretty limited. Social media just explodes that to such an amazing degree. And I heard this amazing quote on Twitter yesterday. I forget who said it, so I apologize for not giving you credit. The quote was, it used to be keeping up with the Joneses, and now it's keeping up with with the Kardashians. And it was like, perfect. That's exactly what it is. The Joneses used to be your neighbors. And that's who you're trying to keep up with. Now it's keeping up with the Kardashians and everybody else on Instagram. And maybe the idea that a million dollars of income is what is rich is because everyone's definition of rich now is a Lamborghini and a private jet because that's what they see on social media. 100%. So uh, I'm going to quote you. I hate you. No, I love you. Um, It's what did you say? Wealth is the different. I'm going to botch this because I love you so much. Wealth is the difference between your income and your ego. Is that it? Did I get it right? I I, I think the original quote was the difference between your ego and your income, but I'll, I'll, I'll let it slide. Let it slide. Let's slide. All right. Well, that was good. But but I think think in the modern world, it is so much easier for your ego or your expectations. If you want to conflate those two to, to grow out of control. I think it's true for, for myself too, as someone who writes about this stuff and has written about this topic. It's true too that my wife and I set our expectations based off of our social circle. And we try to keep it to, a, to as low a degree as we can, but I think it's inescapable. If you're on social media and everybody is, that your expectations of what counts as a good life is going to anchor yeah. to that. And this is, I wow. think there's so much that we don't know because this is 10 years old. 10 years ago, social media was a tiny fraction of what it is today. And the algorithm was a millionth as powerful as it is now. So I just think in terms of a social level of what is this going to do to our long-term expectations and our long-term willingness to go into debt, our long-term happiness, all these very important topics, I think the answer is nobody has any idea. I, I would, I'm with you, but I would question the following. You know, I was commenting to a friend or, or a client the other day that was, you know, talking about the millennial generation and and it will be the only generation, at least older millennials that have one foot in a pre-internet world and one foot out of it. And I I think what I disagree with is, you know, these are two different worlds, our social circles and our social media circles, right? I think about uh, the other parents we hang out with and yeah, we make decisions based on where we could collectively hang out together. Like, Uh, That could be a country club, that could be a community center, anywhere that really has a membership quality to it, the the community pool, or where you play tennis or sports and things like that. Um, And yeah, you do try and make those decisions as to not break your own bank, but you also want to be included, and this is where your life is, versus, you know, looking at the Kardashians accounts online and saying, I need all these material things or accessories or experiences or whatever it is. That to me seems like a little less purposeful spending or, you know, spending with intent versus, yeah, you know, I'm making this costly decision to hang out with certain people, but it's in real life, I guess is what I'm saying. Maybe there's more experiential value being extracted from that. I'm also assuming these are really good friends that you want to hang out with and you have a good time together, right? Yeah. I just remember for me, I think the first time that media influenced my like material aspirations 
was the show MTV Cribs. You remember MTV yeah. Cribs in the awesome. early 2000s? It was an amazing show. It still is. It was a great idea. Like they such a brilliant show. Yeah. And when I was 18 or 19, that was the first time that I had a glimpse into that lifestyle that I had. I didn't really know existed. And I remember that shaping my expectation. Oh, that's what a good life is. But the thing about MTV Cribs is it was 30 minutes a week. And now we're yeah. 27 hours a day. I know that doesn't make sense on social media, on Instagram, sure. which, they, yeah. which is like some iteration, depending on who you are of MTV Cribs 24 seven on your phone. And so that, I just think it's going to, it has such an influence and you're right that you and I remember a world, not just before social media, but before the internet, whereas yeah. our children, it's, it's right in there. My, my, uh, my niece is 16 and the extent to which social media not controls her life is her life Yes, is astounding. And I just think I, that to me, I don't know if it's a worry because maybe there's some great things that come from it, but I just think it's one, it's the biggest social influence of a generation that we've seen in maybe forever. And we have no idea where it's going to go. And, and that's my point is that they are so native, right? The, the you know, younger than millennials, those who have no idea of what that analog world looks like. There's, there's an episode of Futurama where Bender the robot goes to an island where they turn themselves analog. So he's just made of complete wood. Like kids won't understand this, felt the need to reference that episode. But the point is, they are natives. They are digitally natives from the beginning of their life to the end. And I guess all they will ever know and ever see is more of that social media component, like you mentioned, keeping up with the Kardashians or, you know, the, the, the people who've brought about this social media ecosystem that we now live in. Uh, and yeah, we're the last of the, you know, and I think being the last generation or people to have both of that, it actually serves as a buffer, you know, between going head first into this world that is defined by social media in terms of what we're trying to keep up with. Doug, moving on to it, to a slightly different topic. I, I thought about this idea a couple weeks ago called expectations debt. And I based it on this, this observation that I had in my own neighborhood here in Seattle, which is obviously Amazon is a major employer here in Seattle. A third of my neighborhood works for Amazon. And it was really interesting in 2021, when Amazon was on top of the world and it was the most successful company ever and the stock price was flying, everybody around here, A, was rich because they get so much of their comp in Amazon stock, but also you could just see it like in their step, like the confidence and the pride that they had for working for such an amazing company. Amazon swagger. That's it. That's the one. And, but, but it's also, it's interesting in the last two years, in the last year, really, how much of that has unwound because Amazon stock at one point was down 50%. Jeff Bezos left the company, 20,000 people got laid off and 300,000 other Amazon workers fear that they are next. And you can yeah. see that in, in the gate around the neighborhood as well. You could just sense it in people's confidence. And so I started thinking, okay, what was the 2021 boom? What do you call that? You could call it like the natural ups and downs of capitalism. You could call it like an unjustified boom, whatever you want to call it. I think one way to describe it though, was an expectations debt. Like things were so good in 2021 and the expectations were so high that just to maintain that you needed ridiculously good results. And since then, the results of Amazon have been merely good. And that just like destroyed so much wealth and confidence and whatnot. 
And so it's just the idea that all high expectations are like a debt that have to be repaid before you get any benefit. And I think it's true for companies, it's true for countries, it's true for individuals. And once you realize that your, your high expectations are a debt that need to be repaid before you get any benefit, I think you take the idea of managing your expectations really seriously. And the, pretty much the entire financial services industry is based off of improving your circumstances. How do I get more money? Higher net worth, higher income, great, understand it. I think there's almost a complete ignorance on the side of managing your expectations. But when you realize that people just want to be happy with their money, that's not just part of the equation. It's like the majority of the equation that tends to get ignored. So I have found it fascinating. And I know, um, I know in your piece around this, you referenced uh, the Nikkei and uh, the Japanese stock market versus the United States stock market and what that looked like from 1965 to 1990, where the Japanese stock market thrashed the S&P 500, and then you go 1990 through 2022, and it's the other way around. There they are servicing that debt. I thought that was a nice, maybe cherry-picked example, not the you know, no, be too critical of you here, right? Yeah, it was. But here's the thing. 2022 comes along, right? Is is that, you know, the tech drawdown? You mentioned Amazon, uh, 50% oh, tech, you know, absolutely devastated here. And here we are 2023 with a nice bounce back. Do you think 2022 was the repayment of the expectation debt? Uh, from the liquidity jamboree, we'll call it that, that was 2020 through, got my dates right here, through 2022, basically. Yeah, of course, uh, or of course. 2021. That's, that's, that's exactly what it was. And once you view it like that, I think one takeaway here for me, for, for me at least, is like, you should not want any wealth or any income that you don't deserve. Because if you don't deserve it, it's eventually going to come unwound anyways. Like that debt is eventually going to be repaid and it's going to hurt 10 times more than the benefit that you got from it. So it seems counterintuitive, but people should not want a salary that is any higher than what they deserve. And people should not want a net worth that is any higher than they deserve. You should not want investing returns that are any higher than you deserve because anything above yeah. that, reality is going to come due. It's always going to, it's always going to revert and come back to what you are actually owed and deserve. And yeah. the pain from that, the debt repayment from that is a, is a really hard thing that people deal with. So if we can, I, I dig all of this because when I deliver financial plans and we get to the part uh, for retirement planning or we're talking about the rates of return that we expect that that drive the analysis, you know, I, I can't, I, there is not a presentation that goes by where I literally don't say the words reversion to the mean, because when we're talking about those returns, we're talking about forward looking returns, what has to happen based on a ton of historical data. So if you're clocking 11% at, you know, annualized returns over a five or 10 period, uh, five or 10 year period of time, and your mean is like seven, well, you know you got to get back to that line right there. So then you start playing the game of, all right, where where's that shoe going to drop? Where are those bad years? And in 2022, so you can imagine from 2009 through basically 2022, um, you know, the, the um, expected forward-looking returns have gone down and down and down and down because things were good, better and better and better and better. And boom, I, we got down to on like an 80-20 for, for all my investment nerds out there. We got to a risk-adjusted 80-20 portfolio 
being somewhere in the neighborhood of four of the forward looking return on that was 4.31% nominal. And then you got 2%. Let's believe that inflation. You're driving analyses with 2.31% real rates of return because of how good things were over the last 14 years, right? And then 2022 comes along and boom, what do you see for the first time in a very long time? right? That nominal annual, excuse me, annual return actually go up. It was an interesting day to say, hey, clients, look, we're actually looking for returns that are higher moving forward than we have, you know, in the last 13 years, basically. Yeah. I think that to me, the takeaway is just care for what you wish for. Everyone thinks they want good times, but what you actually want are like returns that you actually deserve and nothing above that obviously doesn't happen year over year and we're always going to deal with the volatility and that's the that i think is the deeper lesson from you know just being a disciplined investor is you you the better you can remember that those bad years and these bad times and that debt that needs to be repaid is there and you got to get comfortable with repaying it the better you are at being i think a good to great investor but let's flip it real quick so we're talking about it in in the context of investments and portfolios because that's what we do but you cannot escape a conversation that doesn't involve ai so let's tie these two things together um with all the hype that now exists and i think it is time to put up or shut up like build us stuff with ai change our lives we've been ood and odd with your prompts and your mid-journey images for those of you who understand what i'm saying there is there now an expectation that when it comes to ai because i'm past the ooh and ah phase i get it i'm here for it i want it but i need something that now changes the game in my everyday life i need it now well, what's interesting is I think, I think AI is one of the few technologies that has put up, that has put out a product that's amazing. And I think it's, I think if you want to equate it to the early days of the internet, what was the early days of the internet, at least for like the consumer facing internet? Well, it was, it was AOL Instant Messenger, AOL Instant Messenger amazing. Chat rooms, awesome. amazing. Like things that awesome. you could actually use. And the first time you used it, you're like, oh, this is really cool. And Wait, I, I, I'm, I'm not the first one to make this comparison. I think Josh Brown is the first one I, I heard make this comparison. But compare that to crypto, where for 15 years, effectively, the message is just wait, it's coming. Just wait, it's going to change the world. Just wait and you'll see. And But the actual game changing, the killer app product that's going to change the world and change your life hasn't been there outside of speculating on coin prices. So if you compare that to AI, which AI has been around for decades, but let's let's call AI the birth of ChatGPT, which was last November, whatever it was. Myself yeah, and virtually everyone else, the first time they use it within 60 seconds is like, oh, wow, this is amazing. I could use this. This is the thing. So I think AI is one of the only technologies in the last couple generations that has, from the early days, the first iterations has actually put something out there that's amazing. Uh, you know what? I'm not going to walk what I said back, but maybe I'm impatient, right? Because I was, the point is I was ood and odd and I still, I'll admit, you know, will prompt mid journey, you know, and the image that comes out is mind bogglingly amazing. How, however, I, I still want, I still want to be now ood and odd. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm just excited that I was ood and odd for the first time in a long time with something being developed. But um, I don't know. 
I, I think it will be that great equalizer, and I want I want things to be <laughs> things to be equalized now. Um, I I still think you need to know a good deal of programming languages uh, and and somewhat software engineering skills to t to really dive into what we have now before it becomes so user friendly to folks like you and I. And I don't know if you're a programmer here, Morgan, but you know I'm not writing code anytime soon. But no, everyone I can, see you doing can use like the... ChatGPT to write the code for you. Isn't that the point? Yeah, that's the point. But still, like, it, it needs to be even easier. Like, I, I, you know, I know cyber, and if I like can't do it, you know, right away, then I know most people. It's not ego talk. I know most people are not going to come near it right now. We, in other words, just need get. We need to get people to download or go to ChatGPT and prompt for the first time, or create their first, you know, image. And uh, there's a lot of people who simply have not done that yet. We're here with Cass Sustein, professor at Harvard Law School. He's formerly the co-author of the book Nudge, which was so popular and that it was such a wonderful book, and the current author of the upcoming book Decisions on Decisions. Professor Sustein, thank you so much for joining us and to talk about this book, which I really enjoyed. Thank you. A great pleasure to be here. I always have to start with the question. I've written a couple books myself of the genesis of this book. Where was the aha moment? I know you had mentioned in the introduction of the book that this kind of was derived at least from a compilation of essays that you had written over the years. But I'm curious where the insights and the inspiration for this topic came from. And what was the moment when you realized that you had enough of this material from those essays to compile this into such a wonderful book? Thank you for that. I think it was in the late uh, 1990s, maybe the mid-1990s, that this book started. So that's kind of ancient history. And I had worked with a philosopher named Edna Ullman Margalit on uh, how do you decide how you decide? What are our strategies, whether we're in you know, marriage or in friendship or at work or an investment or with a medical problem? How do we decide how we decide? And we got pretty obsessed by that question and developed a set of strategies that people choose or maybe ought to choose. And that kind of has stuck with me for like a lot of years. And the, the idea of thinking how we decide how we decide um, got to me in thinking about work, about health, about COVID, about uh, investment choices, about startups and what they do. And I think it was maybe two years ago that I thought, you know, this has been nagging at me for a long time now. And maybe to put it together in a single book, there isn't anything really on this, the topic of decisions about decisions. There's a lot on decisions, but not decisions about decisions. So I thought maybe this would be my, as I like to think of it, my least bad book. <laughs> There's this quote from the book, uh, from the introduction, I should say, that I absolutely loved. I'm going to read it here. It says, people might refuse to believe something, even if it can help them live a little longer, if believing it will make them live a lot sadder. I thought that was such a profound statement. And to me, I think this really goes towards the philosophy and ethos of nudge as well, which is that people are not just making quote unquote rational decisions about their lives. They're not just going to the spreadsheet and the chalkboard or the absolute rock hard facts. I think what a lot of times people are doing is trying to eliminate uncertainty in their lives. 
and their belief systems of the, what they choose to believe, whether it's for in their economic beliefs their political beliefs, their health beliefs are what makes them most comfortable. It helps them sleep well at night. What helps them kind of make sense of the world in front of them, which is very different from just trying to find the facts. Is that an accurate uh, way to summarize how so many of these beliefs are made? Completely. So one thing that is part of the human condition is we don't want to believe something that will make us scared or uh, despairing. So if you learn something about your investments that's terrible or something about your eating patterns that suggests you really ought to eat differently, you might think, who said that? What kind of nonsense do they think? And uh, that is in a way not rational because your eating patterns and your investment choices might actually be making you poorer or less healthy. But it's not that irrational because if a belief makes you sad, that's a reason not to hold it. And uh, to believe things that make you think, well, today's going to be terrible. That's not the best thing for that day. So it's good to believe what's true. It's really important to believe what's true. But it's built in our nature to believe things that we don't know are false, but we suspect might be false. But it makes our day better, even if we stick with that belief that we don't have complete confidence in. And if, the, if we investigated it, we might lose confidence in it. You know, both, both Doug and I work in finance. And one of my long-held beliefs is that most people do not want to maximize their returns. They want to maximize for how well they sleep at night. And maybe that's just a much broader truth that for lots of areas in life, health, politics, whatever it might be, people don't necessarily want the truth. They want a comfortable, happy life. And if believing a couple of untruths or half-truths, whatever it might be, leads to that, great. If your goal is to lead a happy life, then more power to you. Completely. So um, I asked people, a pretty large set, not quite national representative, but close to it, if they want to know whether there's a hell and majority, they don't want to know whether there's a hell. I think they think they might get bad news. I also ask people whether they want to know whether the person for whom they have romantic feelings reciprocates those feelings. Only 53% said yes. And I think a lot thought, you know, the person who I really like, as they say in fifth grade, like, like, rather than just like, that person doesn't like, like them back. They don't want to know that. People don't want to know what the stock market's going to look like a year from now. That's a startling thing. I think one reason is that people aren't invested and don't realize that if they invested even a little bit and knew what it was going to look like a year from now, they could make approximately an infinite amount of money. But also people don't want to be scared. So you're completely right. And it's something I, w I was at the University of Chicago for a long, 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 long time. And the idea of maximizing wealth is, you know, really central to how we think at the University of Chicago. But if you're making a decision that makes you scared or not sleep, maybe you shouldn't make that decision, even if it's the economically rational thing to do. I learned a lesson to my, this effect for myself with an insurance choice. It wasn't terrible, but my car got kind of a little crashed, crashed and hurt, and I should have gotten insurance because I would have slept better. And buying insurance wasn't sensible, all things considered. But if you take account of the emotions in that case, probably was a good idea. So two things here. Number one, I, I would actually challenge you on wanting to know where the stock market is a year from now. I think many of my clients might might also want to challenge you on that. 
But all kidding aside, I understand why. It actually means you understand a lot of information about what's happened around you more than just the stock market. And you're right, that can be scary. Um, look, yeah, Morgan said it best. This is a, a money finance podcast. And you know, a lot of what you've written about applies to personal finance. That's my cup of tea. I advise clients on how to make these decisions. And I think people listening would really love to know how the key points of your book can be applied to investing or personal finance. There are a lot of decisions that need to be made, not just on the day to day, but big decisions that affect outcomes over many, many years, decades even, right? From retirement to sending your children to college. That's one in particular that has a lot of question marks around it. Morgan and I have kids of similar age. What's that going to look like 15 years from now versus what we all have experienced in terms of educating ourselves and that's just being one example. So we'd love to know those key points and how they can help you make better decisions or at least think about those decisions in the context of personal finance. Okay, so for life and for personal finance, there's a kind of small set of choices you can make about how to decide how to decide. And here are two that I really like. Uh, one is to adopt a rule and stick with it so you don't have to think a whole lot day to day so if you're thinking for my investment decisions i'm going to get a sensible allocation uh, and then i'm going to stick with that year after year after year maybe i'll adjust if circumstances get very surprising and my advisor whom i trust suggests i should adjust but the foundation will be laid by a rule and uh, i'm not going to look at it very often that's that's really a good thing to do. Here's a second thing, which isn't about rules. It's find someone you trust and just rely on that person. So if you have someone who is you know expert, has lots of people they deal with, uh, rely on that person. Uh, my colleague and co-author, Daniel Kahneman, who inspired some of this book and with whom I wrote a book immediately before this, said, if you want advice, find someone who likes you but doesn't care about your feelings. That I think is great for investment. Now it's not the complete picture, but it's a really good start. The reason it's a good start is if they like you, they care about your well-being. They want you to make money rather than to lose it. But if they don't care about your feelings, they might tell you something that you don't want to hear, at least at the moment. So you might be thinking I should sell everything and put it under the pillow or something in that direction. If they like you, they'll care whether that's a dumb or smart thing. If they don't care about your feelings, they'll say, uh, take a deep breath, maybe sit down. Uh, tomorrow's another day. And, and that's uh, the delegation to an expert choice. So I think that the two ideas really are rules are your best friend and a trusted expert is your second best friend. I, I really appreciate your endorsement here. You sound like a great financial advisor yourself. As a matter of fact, I, I have to tell you how much this comes up in practice where you will hear naturally clients talk about their feelings towards their money or a financial decision they're making. And if you don't as a professional say, hey, I, I hear you, but I, I pretty much do not care about your feelings towards this because that is going to blind us from really getting to the objective answer that you want. So I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And it's interesting how you can actually tell someone like, forget how you feel, here, here are the facts. Right, I mean, 
One little trick, I'm sure you use this, is why my friend Kahneman's advice, find someone who likes you but doesn't care about your feelings. That's a good first first approximation. But you do want to be attentive to the fact that if people are going to be really scared, that's a loss in well-being. And so to attend to that by saying, look, don't take a two-month horizon, of course, take a five-year horizon or a 30-year horizon, that often can make people both better off economically and help them to sleep better because they see that the, the short-run perspective isn't excellent. One problem for investing, by the way, is that, and this is a behavioral finding, is that people hate losses more than they like equivalent gains. So to lose X amount of money is for most people, approximately twice as terrible as gaining that amount of money is good. And lo loss aversion, as it's called, is a great uh, obstacle to economic well-being. If you have, let's say, 10 investments and three of them have lost money and seven of them have gained money, if it's the same losses and same gains for each, then you're probably a lot better off. But a lot of people focus on the three, the three losers. And to get what it's called broad rather than narrow bracketing, that's, uh, that's a third strategy, let's say, for making a decision about a decision, saying, I'm going to look full spectrum rather than I'm going to look at the pockets that didn't do well. And that can complement uh, rule, rule following and following people who really know what they're doing. Shifting gears here a little bit, I want to talk a little bit about social media and what it does to our decision-making pro decision process. And one way that I think about this is that confirmation bias has always existed, but it seemed to me like the core of confirmation bias was you, the person, going out and finding beliefs that agreed with you. And now it's that on steroids because now the algorithm on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram is doing that work for you. And it's feeding you what you want to see. And it knows what you want to see. It knows what your beliefs are. It knows what you're attracted to. And it's feeding those to you. Talk a little bit about what social media has done to us. And it's such a new phenomenon. We're really talking like the last decade here of yeah. how it has impacted what we believe and our willingness to believe it. Okay, so this is going to be fun, I hope. So there's confirmation bias by which people end up tending to believe what confirms what they believe before they've read it and rejecting what's inconsistent with their beliefs. Confirmation bias has a stronger, younger sibling. Let's say it's like a family with two members and the younger has bigger arms, and that's desirability bias, where people will believe what makes them happy and not believe something that makes them sad. Now, they overlap because sometimes what's confirmed is what makes you happy, but they also divide because sometimes you'll believe something that makes you sad, and but you will not be showing confirmation bias if you receive something that will make you happy, even if it's inconsistent with what you believed before. So we have data suggesting confirmation bias is very powerful. Desirability bias is even more powerful. And they both work on social media, both in terms of what people seek out on their own and in terms of what smart algorithms will provide them. So they'll provide them with things that confirm their antecedent beliefs if they think the economy is collapsing or if that somehow thrills them, then they'll see a lot of that. And when I say confirms, that's confirmation bias. When I say thrills, that's desirability bias. What's really terrible about this, this is that uh, 
when I started at the University of Chicago, there was a theory of life, which is people had preferences and hooray, hooray, if we uh, satisfy their preferences. Now we know that's really too simple, that some of our preferences aren't adequately informed or a reflection of biases. And if the algorithm is just seeing what people click on or what makes people feel, oh, I want to believe that and therefore I do, then it's as if the algorithm will be like 1970s economic theory revealed preferences and you can cater to people's lack of information or let's say their unrealistic optimism or let's say their loss aversion or their um, uh, present bias where you focus on today and tomorrow and not the long term, which is really a problem for investors. If you can say things are going to be so awful this month and people are just fed that, fed that, fed that, they might get in a really selling mood. And that might mean the next two years are uh, much worse than they should be. Awesome. Um, I want you, uh, of course, to have the absolute most success with this book. We usually do our interviews 15 minutes here, um, but I want to make sure that we got everything that highlights, you know, uh, what you want out there. Um, so I, I leave it to you if you want. We got we have more questions, of course, but I defer to our guests to make sure we didn't miss a, a singular point, a theme or something that you you would you got to the end of this. You're like, oh, my God, I can't believe I didn't mention that. Anything? These are fantastic questions. So uh, one of my favorite topics is that people choose to believe what they want to believe. And we covered that. And also that people um, uh, seek information that makes them happy, as well as information that's useful. And sometimes they will not seek or credit information that is, makes them feel upset, even if it would be useful. So I have a ton of data on what people want to know, like they don't want to know about global warming in 2100. Uh, they don't want to know what their friends and family really think about them. They don't want to know what year they're going to die. Most people don't want to know that. And that's a clue. It's kind of useful to know what year you're going to die. And it's really useful to know things about what other people think about you. But people don't want to know those things because it'll make them sad. And we always balance what makes us feel smiley or scowling with what we can use in our lives. And some people, some of the time, give a lot of weight to whether information makes them smile or scowl and not a ton of weight to whether the information is useful. And that, that's a problem. So I, I just said a few things about that, but I'm happy to say more if you like. That's I, I, have, I have one quick thing. I've read about this theory. I don't know if it's backed up in academic research or if this is just a fun theory that somebody threw out there, but it's the idea of depressive realism which I think was the idea that depressed people have a more accurate view of the world because it's the flip side of ignorance is bliss. And I wonder if that's, if there's any validity to that, or if that was just kind of a fun term that somebody threw out, if you know. There is some data supportive of the following proposition, which is that humanity is typically unrealistically optimistic. And that's in evolutionary terms, a good thing. If you're running from a tiger, you don't want to think, 
I'm doomed. I can't run as fast as the tiger. You want to think I'm, I'm really fast. I'm, human beings can be really fast and I'm one of them. So survival rewards optimism. There is data suggesting only one day demographic group is reliably not unrealistically optimistic and has an accurate sense. And that is the clinically depressed. I wouldn't, you know, uh, uh, bet all my resources on the validity of that finding, but uh, it, there's suggestive evidence that it's true. It's always been fascinating to me that ignorance is bliss. Sounds like a great life. Bliss, it's great. But we're doing that at the cost of our own accurate view of the future in our own lives and for the rest of the world. Yeah, completely. So there are two, two things that are in conflict. One is knowledge is power and the other is ignorance is bliss. And they both have truth in cases in which knowledge really is power, but isn't blissful. Uh, many of us underweight knowledge, partly because we are focusing on the short term, partly because we are giving excessive weight to the emotional impact of information. I'm thoroughly upset because Morgan beat me to saying ignorance is bliss. That was the singular thing running through my mind over the last three minutes, and he got it. Thanks, Morgan. Appreciate that. You got it. Um, thanks. Listen, I can't thank you enough. Um, again, this is Cass Sunstein. I'm going to try and get this amazing title right. He is the Robert Walmsley Professor at Harvard and the author of the new book coming out soon, Decisions on Decisions. It was so wonderful to have you here talking to us today. Thank you. A great pleasure. All right. That'll do it for this episode of Mind Your Money. If you enjoyed listening in, be sure to tap the subscribe button and keep up with all of our latest shows. Thank you for tuning in. Morgan and I will see you next time.